Good morning. It's great to be with you. What a fun, special Sunday for us, for our family, for those who got to make that declaration. I remember sitting there and uh, as the last group was brought into membership and thinking, I want to speak this. You know, it's so good. So it was great to be able to officially uh, join, be a part of, of this body. I've enjoyed preparing for, for this moment all week. There's just something about the privilege of getting to talk about the church. It got me thinking back over the years and, and really some of the early challenges that I had as a young Christian. I remember I would read through Paul's epistles or Acts and get these truths of what I saw the church was called to be, and then I would struggle with what I felt like the church was in comparison. I wonder if you've ever had that happen to you. When I first went overseas in 1998, I was 21, I went to Ireland and had the privilege of getting to share the gospel there and be a part of the Irish church, and that was exciting. My first real exposure to a cross-cultural or another culture, church context, and also was able to experience on that trip as I got to backpack Europe and sleep in trains, and it was a bit crazy, but I got to see the church in England, the church in the Czech Republic, and then I came back to the States, and it was like something had happened, something shifted in my heart and in my mind. I remember going into a, a bookstore and seeing testaments for sale. Testaments. They were mints. Testaments. It, I, and I just, before that wouldn't have ever caught my attention, but something had changed in that all of a sudden I'm going, wait a minute. This is consumerism mixed with our Christianity. We're selling testaments. I remember my old Sunday school teacher, he had a bookshop, and he told me, that someone called his bookstore and said, do you sell Christian t-shirts? And if I could do his voice properly, he said, Christian t-shirts? How is a t-shirt Christian? And I thought, wow. When I went to Africa and experienced churches that didn't even have a place to go and use the toilet, there they call them latrines, and boy, over the years, Lord Beth and I have used some very makeshift um, bathrooms. Um, woo, yes. Uh, or, or sat for hours and hours on very hard benches, some that are, are breaking, and it's very uncomfortable with, with speakers in your ears that are so loud that it literally hurts, you know. Um, and then to come back into a Western context, boy, we enjoy sitting on cushioned seats and um, we're thankful for sound control. And, um, and yet, the disparity of, of what we prioritize and how and, and what we argue about and why and where we feel like we need to put our, our finances and, and why in, in comparison and these things just wrestling in my heart and what I found in my young years as I continued to come into the American context and worship in American churches, I found that my heart was getting more and more critical 
I was spiraling down and I didn't even know it. And I felt righteous because I felt like I could see what other people were missing. And the truth is, is that I needed a great humbling. I needed a reorienting of my thinking. I wonder if you've experienced something like that in your own context where you feel like there is a disconnect between what you believe the church is supposed to be and what it is. Today I want to invite you to join me in the great humbling, in the reorienting that God began to work in me those years ago. And he continues to work in me. It's not something that we can produce in ourselves. It is the Spirit's work as we are confronted by His Word and as we submit ourselves to it. And so with that in mind, I'm going to just pray together and then we're going to jump into Colossians chapter 1. And so Lord, as we come to you together, we pray that you would confront each of us in, our, in the place of our need that you would deepen in us a love for your church, passion for your body as we grow in deeper love with you, our head. Thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege to come together. Thank you that right now there is peace around us even as spiritual battle rages. We walk in the gospel of peace. We declare that gospel of peace. We live in that. Lord, may your word be alive to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've journeyed through Colossians, we've been able to, together, joyfully see the beauty of what the church had believed. We saw right through chapter 1, this gospel hope. They were a people that were established in truth. They were displaying that truth in their love for one another. And then Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 1 that that this which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and it's growing. And so just as he's starting his letter, he starts zoning in on them and then he pushes them out and says, there's a global reality here that this gospel is going forth into the world. And then he comes back in and he says, as it also is bearing fruit and growing, or as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So he goes global. He comes into to them locally as it's rooted in them. And over the last few weeks, Peter's walked us through Paul's prayer and his desire for the church to celebrate really the reality that We have been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have forgiveness. And lest you think there's any Star Wars battle of good and evil type, he's going to just absolutely demolish that by showing us the preeminence and the glory and the majesty of Jesus as the sovereign over all things. That's always my favorite thing. The creator of all things, before all things, in him all things hold together. And that leads us into our passage today. 
We're in verse 18. We're going to read it together. I know it might take a while, but let's listen to Colossians 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Full stop. That's our text. I'm going to go ahead and read again, but I'll read the verse before it, and then I'll finish verse 18. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is a majestic text. It draws us to all into worship. Christ the head, the church is the body. It's two simple, straightforward points that we want to explore today. In fact, it comes to us almost like an aside. It's almost as if as we read the passage from verse 15 down, and and this greatness of Christ before all things, they hold together in him, and he's the head of the body of the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's almost easy to just skip through it rather than to hone in on it because it is placed here very, very strategically. It's a metaphor that can almost feel out of place and yet metaphors have a unique way of capturing our attention and putting exquisitely grand truths into practical understanding and application. And Paul's going to unpack this language later in the letter. But one author has helpfully said, when the Scriptures speak in metaphors... They are both describing and creating in the people of God how to think and act. It's not only descriptive, it is world-forming. And I like that a lot. And it's true because it's an image that has a tangible reality as we understand it, as we believe it, as we live it. This week I had a good time just walking around and simply saying over and over, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the body, the church. As world catastrophe is going on, but Christ is the head of the body, his church. So why does Paul insert this metaphor here? What does he want to shape in us through it? Just as shaping as the majestic awe of Christ existing before all things, eternally existing, creating all things, for him all things, everything holding in him, and then him being this head of this body. What does he mean when he says that Jesus is the head? That's our first question. What does he mean when he says that Jesus is the head? 
In the ancient world, you have two key components among others that I think get to the heart of why Paul uses this metaphor and really what or how it shapes us in reality as we see it drawn out in Scripture. And really the, the two key aspects are the head functioning as both authoritative, there's an authority function of head, and then there's a source function of head. Now in modern culture, we want to downplay the authority side and, and, and highlight the source. We want to though, look at both because both are mandatory. and We need them to understand our place as the body. And so first, Jesus stands as the authoritative head or in the authoritative position over the church. Now here at Risen, that's not surprising. We talk about that. And it makes sense from this context. He's not trying to bring Jesus down in any way. He is exalting him up and he wants to draw us into that same exalting worship of Christ, the living head. It's the same idea found in Psalm 18 when David writes, You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. This is a picture of leadership and authority and a response of submission. Jesus is Lord, and He is Lord alone. Romans 10, the early church made the confession, Jesus is Lord, as so central to their worship, and it continues to be. Because as we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we are simply proclaiming what is true and Scripture attests is true. He reigns with all authority in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. I love listening to prayers in Uganda that are in Luganda. It's quite common to hear the phrase, Yesu Yemukama, Yesu Yemukama, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. It's not as the Roman Catholic Church might teach that Jesus is the invisible head and the Pope is the visible earthly head. That is wrong. That is not the picture that we have from Scripture. Christ is the heavenly and earthly head. He's head over all things. There is no separation. When we first arrived in Uganda in 2002, Back again in 04, we went to Samuel Family's worship. Some of you have been to Samuel Family. And as we sat there, I was shocked to hear someone sharing in this devotional. And they said to the children, Children, the Lord, God wants you to be the what? The head. Not the what? The tail. And I sat there like, What are they saying? Don't forget, he wants you to be the what? The head, not the what? The tail. I went back just scratching my head. What are these guys sharing? A few days later, I was actually reading in the book of Deuteronomy. And I read where he writes, The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top and never at the bottom. 
And I thought, okay, it's in the Bible. <laughs> but what does it mean? Right? And in the covenant, this is the context of the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And of course, it is the exalted place among the nations is what he's speaking of. There's this blessing of God on his people, this prospering of his people. And yet today, when we stand and we look at the church, we are not the head. You are not the what? The head. You are not. Now, you're not the tail either. And that's good. But we have a head because Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. What David was pointing to is even greater and is fulfilled in Christ. And it continues to be fulfilled. And we'll see a bit later how. Maybe we would be tempted to think that the church would be better if you or me were making the decisions, making the changes, calling the shots. And it wouldn't be because we are not the head. We are not the head. Christ is the head. He is the head alone. He has authority over his church. What kind of head is he? That's important. Leads us to the second key aspect of headship. So he's the authoritative head or he has all authority as the head of the church. The second, he is the source of the life of the church. Now, we don't think of, of the head that way, and yet that was very common in the ancient world. And we see this pictured in Scripture for us. The head was seen to provide life and sustenance and the direction of the body. And I think even though I'm not preaching on this text, but I think in chapter 2, verse 19, gets to the heart of this when he's talking about those who have been puffed up with pride and their own visions, their own minds, sensuous minds. And then in verse 19, he says of these that they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Not holding fast to the head from whom the body is nourished and knit. He is the source of the life of the church. And this sets the church apart from all of creation because he doesn't do this with the stars and the planets and with the animals this is for his people, his church. We hear the authoritative statement in Matthew 16, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Then we hear to the disciples in John 15, abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. Because it's in him that all sustenance, all life flows. And how? Because he gave his body. He submitted his body to the brokenness of the cross. And he died the death that we should have died. So that his life 
can become our life. So that His righteousness can become our righteousness. And He rose from the grave, conquering sin, death, and Satan. And He reigns with that authority. And He has inaugurated the new creation. And in that, the beauty is that as we are in Christ, we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. I used to have it on my license plate a long time ago. It's a beautiful idea. It's life-changing. That we are joined into Christ as His body, He who is our head. Let's flip over to Ephesians. Because I think Ephesians 5, again, is going to portray this very clearly for us. Of course, Paul's writing at this point. He's addressing wives and husbands. In verse 23, he says the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is himself its Savior. And so he images from husband who's imaging a greater head, which is Christ, the head of the church. Then he goes in and he talks about this reality as husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how? How did Christ love the church? In what way is Christ the head leading, giving himself up for her? And that's what he says in verse 25 as he lays down his life for her, his headship is sacrificial. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. And the mystery is Christ in the church. What does Christ do? He gives himself up for her. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her with the washing of the water, of the word. He will present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And I love that language because that's not normal. When Nate presents Emma, he will present her to be wed. How many weeks? All right. He will present her because he has had a part in preparing his daughter. It's been his responsibility. Wow. But Christ, what does he do? It says that he will present the church to himself in splendor. And there's a reason. Because this is Jesus' work for his church. This is what he does. He washes, he cleanses, he sanctifies, he sets her apart, and she will be presented beautiful 
holy and without blemish. That should give us comfort and confidence in a multitude of ways. I remember when I was wrestling through my own pride, my own judgments, my battle with what I was reading in Scripture, what I was seeing and struggling. And as I was sharing this with a good friend who's a mentor, has walked many years with Jesus, I'll never forget what he said. He listened to my struggles, and then he just spoke right into it. And he said, Keith, you're in a dangerous place when you set yourself up as the judge of the church. Because when you set yourself up as judge of the church, you ultimately find yourself judging Christ himself, who is the head of the church. Because it's Jesus who is committed to present his bride beautiful. It's Jesus who takes his word and cleanses. It's Jesus who builds her up. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And I remember just like a knife went into my heart because I thought I was so right. And what I had to realize what in my, was in my rightness, I could be so, so wrong. Do you know that you can be wrong in your rightness? And I needed to repent and to humble my heart. And it was this text that opened my eyes to the beauty of Christ's church. She will be presented beautiful. And she has a Savior and a head, and that is Christ. And then, through the place of repentance... The Lord allowed me to begin to say, okay, Jesus, how can I faithfully love and live your word and live it out in the context of this body that you are shaping and changing for your glory? And as each one of us do that, as we come and we live out that covenant that we read together because it captures the heart of it beautifully, do you know what happens? The church builds itself up in love because ultimately it's Christ's work. And it's what Jesus does. I wonder if there's anything that the Lord would have you repent of in your own pride and your own judgment over His church. And don't get me wrong, the church must always be confronted and brought into line with Christ's truth. But it's easier to stand as judge and critic of others than to have oneself judged. It's easier to be self-righteous than to give up everything in love for the sake of the body and the church. And as we gain vision for Christ, our head, the authority and the source of the life of the church, we then are able to understand what it means to be part of the body. Because that's where we stand. He's the head and we are the body. So let's shift to that side. All right, we've seen Christ the head. Let's look at what it means for us to be the church, the body. 
The New Testament uses different metaphors to describe the church. Two of my favorite are temple and bride. Each of them are, are shaping in their reality. But, and in their biblical and theological, um, what I say is umph, they're powerful terms. This image of body communicates crucial truths also for us to lay hold of. Because as we've said, since he's the head, we are the receivers from Christ our head. We are the receivers of his care and his grace and his kindness and his discipline and his rebuke and his leadership. That's us. I almost wonder if it would be good to go back this week and just sit in Ephesians 5 and just think about all of those things that we read, picturing Jesus doing those for you, doing those for us, doing those for the churches, and doing those for His body around the world. Because this text, as we come into Colossians 1, As Paul writes here, he's not specifically talking about local church. He is the head of the body, the church. Just as he goes global, we think of it local. As we think of ourselves as a part of that church being washed and cared for, Jesus leading us, we also think of the bigger church and the broader church and the global church. So we are receivers from Christ, our head, but as a church globally, we are displayers of Christ, our head. And somehow in the mystery of God, we display or Jesus has chosen to display his own fullness through his people. Ephesians 1 is very much like a parallel passage to Colossians 1. And I like what we would call parallel passages because you see that this isn't just a side. You see how strategic he is as he's thinking and as he's writing and what the Spirit is stirring in the churches. And in Ephesians 1, Paul does almost the same thing. Because as he writes the blessings of the gospel in chapter 1, and he goes down and he then prays, For the Ephesians, just like he prays for the Colossians, Paul comes to the end of chapter 1, and again he talks about how Jesus is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. In verse 21, he says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then he says, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, don't mistake that the the global church isn't Christ. Christ is Christ, and He fills all things, and He rules over all things. He fills it all. And yet, as the head over His body, He 
displays his fullness most fully, uniquely, through his body, the church. John Piper said it this way, Christ fills the universe with his glory by showing the universe his body. Of course, all of that is to satisfy her, his body, forever and ever with himself. And that is you and me. It is the local church that makes up, or local churches that make up this global church. And that global reality, this making known of Christ, this fullness of Christ going into the nations should affect us as we walk through our days, as we come on Sunday and gather, as we put on that screen the global and persecuted church, as we pray for one another, because we are members of the body together. And there's a confidence that we have knowing what it is that the head is committed to that shows us how to live and how to pray and how to give in the context of this global church. Christ is the head of his body, the church. I've enjoyed in the midst of what has been so hard, the realities of of Ukraine and the realities of war, but thinking about the spiritual realities, thinking beyond just the physical and what we see. And I was blown away by one pastor from Kiev who said that before the Russians invaded, that they, they as a local church had prepared one another with first aid, uh, learning how to do all the, the various things that they might encounter in a war situation to help care for others. And they said, Kiev will know that the Christians stayed and gave of themselves as others are fleeing. And that just brought me right into the heart to say, God, your people, your body, the fullness of you, filling the earth. And that's how I want to pray. God, fill your people. Let the people of Kiev see Christ in the midst of death and destruction. Let the gospel of peace be declared in what is impossible to see, where peace is impossible to see. Because there is something greater at work. And he calls us to join and be a part of that great global reality. This Jesus who is Lord over all, thrones and dominions. Over all in heaven and on earth. And so we see and so we pray and we weep and we rejoice. And we need this global body, brothers and sisters. We cannot make our own American Christianity the center of our Christian universe, though it is by nature what all of us will do. The Christians in Uganda have to face the same thing, and the Christians in England the same thing. We desperately need the global body to pull us out of ourselves, to reveal to us our own blind spots and our own cultural syncretism where we mirror the culture and we let it shape us. Not this book. Or even worse, where we read the book through the lens, convinced we've got it right. We need to be confronted. And he will use 
the global church is one means to help reveal some of those blind spots, some of those cultural syncretism. And for you kids who are writing on your paper, that's probably a word you don't know, syncretism. And that is the blending of our culture and our Christianity. Ask your mama how to spell it. That was life-changing for me as it took another culture to expose to myself just how my own American culture was impacting me in the negative sense. It also showed me the beauty of my Western culture and things to celebrate. And there is much to celebrate. And this is foundational for the call for each of us to bear one another's burdens, thus fulfill the law of Christ, to pray for one another, and to partake in the gospel going to the nations. Locally, as we're a part of this body, the church, and we don't have the time to go into the all that's applied in 1 Corinthians 12 as you think about the function of the body. And that, Paul uses the body language there differently in 1 Corinthians 12. Here it's just the head and the body. And yet this application of the members of the body, none of us able to exalt one above another. And actually it's the least that is the greatest. And the reality is that that's because it, it, it images Christ, who as the greatest made himself the least. And he turns everything upside down because we're under the head. And that's why we sacrifice for one another. We count each other more important than ourselves. And it's why we live out this covenant together. There's another reality here. As Christ is the head, as we are his body, we think about it even as we come and look at church leadership. We've heard sermons on this and good teaching on this. And that's just the truth that the elders are not the head of the church. They are simply lead, servant leading the church. They are given an authority and a responsibility in the church, but they are imaging. They are under shepherds of the shepherd. It's Christ the head. And they are here, and their job isn't to do the ministry, but it's to equip us to do the ministry. And that flows from Christ the head. And that's why they are praying and shepherding in the word, because we have to conform to Christ. It goes right into the way that we function together and treat our leaders. In Uganda, we would often hear when something was decided that people didn't like, yeah, you know, the elders said, ah, the elders, the elders, the elders. I began to say, well, who are they? Because they're people. It's not just like this secret group that meet in a back room. I mean, it, these are men that God has appointed, that you have appointed, and the under the headship of Christ, to shepherd and to lead. Our trust isn't in men. Our trust is in the head who is Christ who will lead his church. And he will sovereignly wash his bride and make her beautiful, perfectly 
through the imperfect leadership of men in this church. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, it can cultivate both a love for the local church and within you a great desire to pray for the elders and the deacons that he has raised up in this body. We want to share the passion of the elders and deacons of this church to see this church presented as a pure bride. And we want to labor among one another in the word and in prayer that we would together be washed by our Savior. This flows right down into family because just as it's Christ and the body and you've got out of this body, we have elders and deacons representative amongst us as a people. In the same way in family, we have husbands who are called as the head of their wives. But the husband is not Christ. He's not the head as Christ. He's imaging Christ, and it's dangerous to take the mantle of Christ because you, husbands, and you, wives, together are members of His body. And yet, out of that reality, there is a beautiful image that takes place as husbands walk in leadership of their wives. And as they die and lay down themselves and sacrifice for their wives, and as they take that responsibility to reflect Christ by washing their wives with the word, and as their greatest desire is to see their wives presented to Christ as a pure and spotless bride, as that's their passion, everything changes in a marriage and a family context. Everything else becomes so much easier to talk about the role of headship and submission, and the way these beautifully work together, the way they both image Christ and the church together. So it goes from Christ right down into the local church and right down into the family. We want to be passionate to see these truths imaged among us. And husbands, the truth is, is that your wives will be most happy when you give them the thing their hearts yearn for the most, and that's Jesus. And wives, your husbands will be most happy when you give them the thing that their hearts yearn for the most, and that's Jesus. All of this to make known the one who fills all things and rules over all things and in a culture with brokenness in marriage, and as we've been listening in, in our training hour, whether it's in gender identity, or whether it's in the social issues that we're facing, we desperately, desperately need to see the church rising up, being the body, just being the body, and knowing with confidence what it means to live under Christ, who is the head, and to have eyes of faith to see that in all things, in all hardships, in all struggles, in all battles, in all circumstances, we have a head. 
who is directing his body, who is cleansing his body, who will present her beautiful. And she will be beautiful. Do you believe that? As you leave here today, I want you to just think about, are you captivated with passion for the beauty of the bride of Christ, his body? Are you submitted to the head? And are you functioning as a part of this body? I invite you to join me in daily repentance and submission to this truth. That's my conclusion. It's very simple. Christ is the head of the body, the church. Let's live in light of that amazing reality. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you that you are gracious with your body and you are patient. Even as you rebuke, even as you divide through your word, you heal and you build up and you do these things perfectly. Lord, we want to be passionate for your church globally and we want to be passionate for your church locally, right here at Risen King. We want to see your bride made beautiful. We know that among us right here, there are hurts and there are joys and there are disappointments, sorrows, and yet there is great hope. Lord, may we be your vessels to one another as we live as a part of your body. May we together submit to you, our living head. And Lord, may we walk in the freedom of children of God and what it means to be yours and known as yours. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. In Jesus, your name, amen.